Shock doctrine. Shock doc. Ooh. Ooh, a shock doc. As in short for shock doctrine or the shock doctors. A band made up of PhD. <laughs> you love words. Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, or ICS. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. In this podcast, we gather together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. So, each week, we invite past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us, and we ask them to share their journeys in scholarship and how it connects to their faith, their practices, and their lives. Joining us again today will be senior member in theology Nick Ansel, and joining us for the first time will be Emily Detloff, a dear friend of ICS and a yogini in training. The two of them have been having some interesting conversations, so this week we're going to do things a little differently. regular segments, and before we get to Emily and Nick's conversation, we want to take a moment in this podcast to give another kind of glimpse into the goings-on here at ICS. As many of you may know, ICS recently hosted an open house in its new home. We were blown away by the joy and support brought by those who attended. So, thank you, first of all. But secondly, during the celebrations, we asked our guests to share their hopes for the future of ICS. So now, we're going to share some of those hopes with you all. Enjoy. My name is Ray Vanderzeg. I'm one of the board of trustees of the Institute for Christian Studies. My day job is as professor of international development studies at Canadian Mennonite University in Winnipeg. I'm on the board because my mom in the 1950s, as a young single woman before she married my dad, attended Annette Street Christian Reformed Church where Pastor Guillaume, one of the founders of AACS, was the pastor. And she was all, you know, that was her fun thing to do. And so as a result, as a kid growing up, there was always ICS perspectives sitting on the coffee table. And um, that got me interested enough that I uh, kept thinking about these kinds of things. In terms of my hope for ICS, well, that it slowly grows, that it continues to do, I think, the important work of training MA and PhD students with the senior members. I think that's really important. Um, I think in a post-Christian world that having philosophers who understand from a sort of radically Christian perspective the claims of Christianity that also apply philosophically and work philosophically um, is really important. And then I'm really excited too that it becomes in some sense more popular through doing like the MA leadership 
MA in vocational wayfinding. Those are really important things because I think people increasingly are looking for figuring out what they do every day makes meaning in their lives and makes meaning in the world because the world is getting crazier all the time. My name's Rika Vanderland and I've been associated with ICS since I was about 14 years old, I think, and that's a long time ago. Um, and uh, I'm retired, but I've been very involved with ICS. I was on the board at one point in time. I've taken courses at ICS, etc. And I think it's very exciting that ICS is here in this new space, and it's it's a new beginning. And I my hopes for ICS and dreams are that it will just flourish and grow in whatever way it needs to and continue to be the wonderful impact in the world that it has been in the past, and even more so. My name is Fred Hirama. I've been involved with the ICS since, oh, probably my college days in the late 60s, and then I attended here as a student from uh, 71 for a couple of years in the early days on Lyndhurst Avenue and decided that I needed to think a little bit more about work, and then, since I didn't have a clear focus in my studies, but I've continued to be supportive and connected with the organization and appreciates its, its goals and aspirations, of course. Now that you're in the new space, I'm hoping that, you know, you will be able to make a better connection with the world of academics. It's like you're planted right within it, and I hope that there will be many good sources of connection with uh, the university and that other students will be aware of the ICS's presence here and uh, feel drawn to the great things that it has to offer. My name is Jereen DeYoung. I'm somebody who grew up uh, attending the ICS Family Conference in the summers, starting in about the year 1970. And the Family Conferences for me provided me with a window on the world, a broader horizon than I had perceived at that age, and was really deepening and enriching experience for me personally. So I have many, many fond memories, and I hope that the Institute continues to be a kind of a hearth for the Christian community and sharing that breadth and depth and richness and because it has a lot to offer. And thank you for all these years of richness. My name's Hilda Buseman, and I've been involved with the ICS probably almost from its inception. As a very small child, my parents were quite involved in what was going on and um, supporting the people who were starting the ICS. My father was a student of some of the faculty who trained the faculty who began the ICS. Um, and I've been to conferences at every location that the ICS has had family conferences. So I've been in the original one, and I can't remember if that was in Bowmanville area somewhere, uh, then in the one in Niagara, then in the one in BC, and in the one in Alberta. So my husband and I, my parents and I, we went to many different conferences. So from a young child already being dragged to conferences, it was always an exciting time. We learned about many topics. Where the singing was phenomenal. The music was great. The camaraderie and community was really top-notch. So in many ways, it's kind of bred in my life. After my uh, parents moved and after I got married, I was still connected. We have been supporters for many years, um, both as uh, my parental family and my husband and I. 
And I've been on the board now. Uh, this is my second time. I was on the board in uh, the late 1900s when there were talks with Kings trying to merge Kings and ICS. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't go anywhere. But then since then, I've had several different positions, and my husband and I have ended up through various moves in Edmonton, Alberta. I'm now working at Kings, and I find myself back in a place where we're talking between Kings and ICS. And so that's part of my hope that the two institutions will be able to work together. Part of my hope is that there will be many more students who get to know and understand the value of the Institute for Christian Studies and that they will be able to see the wonderful things that they can learn and experience as a student here. And uh, my hope is that the institution as a whole will flourish in such a way that it makes an impact on um, students, but also on community and the Christian world. And so that that in turn can make an impact on what's going on in the world as a whole. And so that we can be a witness in many different ways in many different areas in the world. And that's my hope. Hello, I'm Lyle Clark. I've been connected with the ICS since about 1990. Uh, I first started with um, one or two classes uh, part-time at that time. I, I was fortunate to be able to take the um, class of aesthetics with Calvin Zerfeld in his uh, final year at the Institute, and uh, that was quite a challenge for me, who had never studied philosophy prior to that. And then I've been involved in other ways, so as a supporter, certainly, in the community, but also I had a one-year contract working at the Institute in the first year of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics under the head of uh, Lambert Seidervart. That was, I believe, about 2013. And um, that was an exciting time when we were getting things going. We held a big conference for uh, social justice and uh, human rights and uh, was excited to be involved that way. So uh, hopes for the Institute for the coming years. I think it's really exciting that they've uh, made the move to Knox College, and I hope this will be a good home. And also, especially with uh, being able to collaborate more closely with the um, faculty and students of Knox College, and of course, uh, the other schools of the TST. So hopefully it'll be a means of growth for ICS. So um, I think that'll be really exciting, and um, I wish all the best in the years ahead, and then look forward to continuing supporting uh, in what ways we can. Hello, my name is John Josie. So I go back a bit. I'm 71 years old. And I go back to when I was a teenager connected to the ICS, okay? My father was also a president, uh, chair of the board for a while, on the board. And you might say one of the founders of some of the ICS kind of movements, including the CLA and, and Christian schools and that sort of thing, okay? So uh, I grew up in that environment, hearing all these discussions, these passionate discussions about, you know, what the gospel meant to, uh, to all areas of life and to the institutions of our society. I joined the board a couple of years ago, okay, uh, with some apprehension, partly because of the, just the time commitment, but also whether I would have anything really to offer, because I'm a not, not an academic myself, okay, so interested in, but not. And the reason uh, we feel very strongly, of course, is because we believe in the vision of ICS. I mean, it's so important to us, and for the academic world, we feel very strongly about that, you know, coming from the background and perspective as Christians that we do, and what we think the gospel can say to academic discussion and exploration and research and all of that sort of thing. 
we believe the gospel can, can offer some kind of assurance and hope that way as well, not only in an eternal sense, but that, you know, imbued with the, the image of God, we have the capacity, you know, to do this and to do it um, in an unselfish kind of way, okay, so that all people benefit, you know, it's not just a few. And that's what's happened, of course, as you well know. So we have lots of dreams for ICS. And, uh, and the, the faculty we're very impressed with in the student body, senior, junior member concept, is excellent. Like the relationships are so good. We just have to make more of them. So my name is Ray, Ray Postman. And uh, my first connection with ICS was in 1961 uh, as a high school student. And the pastor took us to Unionville Conference in 1961. And Cal Serafel, young professor from Trinity College, was talking about aesthetics. And Remplicus Coyster was talking about, I forget. And then Runner was talking about the Christian University. And it was held in a barn. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I've been, you know, I've been part of ICS for many years. And uh, I'm from Winnipeg. Originally, and now we live in Toronto. So we, uh, as students, at the university students, I was at the University of Manitoba, we would host the professors from ICS, ARSS in those days. Yeah, we would host them as, you know, part of the university get-together of reformed students, and, uh, and Hank Hart would be there, and uh, Marshall, and uh, Bernie Zylstra. I'm showing my age. Yeah, so it's been good. My aspiration continue to grow and look for opportunities and uh, become global in terms of, of learning and, uh, and experiencing and uh, God be served in Jesus Christ. Yeah. My name is Andrew Hebbett. I am a former junior member at ICS. I wrote my MA thesis on Hannah Arendt under the direction of Ron Kuypers. And I've been in graduate school way too long, and I've been in, uh, so I've been in a several different contexts in, of graduate school. And my experience uh, ICS courses uh, were some of the best experiences I, I had as a graduate student. Those courses were by far the most challenging, but also the most rewarding experiences um, as a student. And so my hope for ICS would be that more people would find out about this place and come and be a part of the education that happens here. Today, our guests Emily and Nick will share with us some conversations they've been having around the connections and differences between their worlds of study and practice. We want to highlight this conversation, not necessarily as a way of bringing these two worlds together into a common language, but as a way of highlighting how each uses their own language and their own approach to find meaningful ways to frame their experiences. So before we both let you jump in, Emily, since you're new to our podcast, I'd like to introduce you with a couple brief questions. First. What was a favorite book of yours from childhood? So I started reading Harry Potter when I was nine years old, and that has carried through into my adulthood as something that has been really important to me. I feel like every time I read it, and I read it in different uh, stages of my life, after it, something has changed significantly for me, I'll usually read the series again, and it often just means different things, and different things come out, and yeah, there's something kind of divine in that story for me. Second question. What is your favorite bar or coffee shop here in Toronto? Uh, I have a three-way tie 
for coffee shops. One is Lazy Daisies at Coxwell and Drive. I haven't been there in a while, but they have lovely food. It's a great atmosphere to bring kids. I've done childcare for a long time, so I've been there a lot with them. Dean works at the Sidekick Coffee Shop, so I have to mention them, Greenwood and Queen. Uh, the boss is really cool. Uh, she roasts her own beans and is a comic book expert and sells comic books there. Coffee's great. And then the third one is near my yoga studio. It's called the Art House, and that's near Davenport and College. And they're lovely people. They, it's like an art exhibit as well as a coffee shop. And they have really yummy gluten-free snacks. They have a matcha cookie that is just phenomenal. Finally, and to jump right in, could you narrate for us what it is you do and what is your connection to ICS? And could you set the stage for how you and Nick started having these conversations? So I am a yoga teacher in Toronto. I'm also a nanny. And yeah, I'm finishing up my training in, in yoga. And I've been teaching that the last few months. And it's been really lovely. So I am married to Dean Detlaw, who is a junior member here, a PhD student. And we come all the way from Michigan so about five and a half years ago, we moved here so he could do the master's program at ICS. And I think it was his first semester here. And he started coming home from classes, talking about this biblical foundations class he was taking, coming home with some new ideas about the biblical text that somewhat infuriated me. <laughs> I remember one of them was that the serpent in the garden was not, in fact, the devil. And that seemed very heretical to me, and I was kind of indignant about that. And I I think it was at the Christmas party the first year that Dean encouraged me to ask you about that, because it just inflamed me a little bit. And uh, I think we had a good chat. I don't really remember what it was about. And then I asked if I could come sit in on your Biblical Foundations class. And Wasn't that a little bit later? Yeah, so it was. We didn't know each other for sort of at least a year. I mean, actually, the the serpent. Sorry to yeah, let's disappoint talk about you, it. but the the serpent of Genesis is connected to the Satan. Hmm. But but the serpent is usually interpreted as a deceptive from the word right. go, and also a kind of a fallen angel or something. That's so, and probably my argument in that class that Dean conveyed to you would have been connected to me saying the serpent figure is can be interpreted as wise not crafty and uh, gets pulled into what becomes human evil and, and so forth but uh, can be interpreted differently yeah at that point as well I think I was kind of having my own progression in spirituality that felt really difficult at the time and it was the first time that I had not been around Christians in my everyday life. So I was in Toronto and working with families that weren't Christian and making friends that weren't Christian. And I felt very attracted to the way that Nick was dealing with text and kind of playing with it. I thought that that was really new and interesting. So I think that's another reason I wanted to take his class and see what that was all about. I think throughout our conversations, we've kind of both identified ourselves as seekers yeah, and mm -hmm. have been having those kinds of conversations for a while now. I remember it as we, we were having those conversations pretty much from the outset. 
but the connection of seekers were both you can describe this number of ways in terms of being in one sense restless Mm -hmm. it's like you know the u2 song i still haven't found what i'm looking for it's like that Uh, but that can be a positive thing not necessarily a negative thing it's like the restlessness is also a kind of desire and it's a desire for something more that propels you forward so seek the spiritual journey is uh, trying to keep going deeper face yourself more face your fears more yeah. Uh, embrace the divine in a fuller a fuller way and you don't stop yeah we had this conversation coming here about how we had different perspectives on the outcome of me taking that class for me it was i wanted you to save this text for me in this particular tradition yeah and my perspective before today was that that experiment had failed but you had kind of this other way of looking at it Yeah, I mean, there are many Christians that are looking for a different relationship to Scripture because the Scripture that they've been taught doesn't bring life to them. And I I don't want to just replace what they've heard from others before and say, now there's this new stuff and, you know, maybe you'll like this better or maybe it'll fit better or something like that. I, I mean, I throw my own ideas out in class in terms of how I read And it's true. I mean, a number of people do take on board a number of those kind of readings and and like them. But it's really is a stimulus for people to find their own way of relating to the Bible as a source of life. And so you don't surrender the Bible. We all have to relate, find a way to relate to it as a word of life for us, find an authentic way. And so I just try and give examples of what I've done with my reading. And I do expect that some of that will be able to carry someone will be able to take certain things just take them on board without necessarily even changing that much and other things that it's just a spark for finding their own way yeah i have a yoga philosophy teacher who says that we read these ancient yogic texts not so that we can better understand the texts but so that we can use them to better understand ourselves do you feel like that's kind of what you're yeah that certainly gets at an important dimension to it it's not so much that the text has one, there's one right reading of the text and it's just a matter of finding that and then it's aha. It's like that text mediates something from God. So it's like the text is supposed to sensitize you and help you tune in to what God is saying and saying within you. Um, and then you can find that in the text but what the text is saying is really mediating something from beyond itself, in a sense. So, uh, so the message can keep changing in a way. Uh, you're not trying the one meaning that's just permanently there, and that's it. Because if that was the case with scripture, once you'd got that meaning, you could you could throw the Bible away. So it wouldn't be a living text, right? So the idea of scripture's living word of of God. So it might sound a little bit strange for some Christians, perhaps, for me to sort of say the meaning can keep changing. But the idea of a living word is very much part of Christian vocabulary. So that idea is already there. It's just that we, you know, we have different language for that. How have you been able to find living points of connection between your two worlds of study and practice? I'm always looking for new ways to sort of understand and articulate the Christian faith in as authentic a way as I can at any one moment. So I find as I look to say things differently, I'm often aware 
at those points, there's a, a kind of a natural connection to some of the things that you're exploring. So, for example, I mean, if you read Genesis, there's the, the fall narrative. And I think that most Christians understand, connect the fall to sin, this category, sin. Those two things kind of coincide. So it's, it's very interesting that the language of sin doesn't show up in Genesis 3, which is, that's the sort of beginning of the fall narrative. It shows up in Genesis 4, which is the Cain and Abel uh, narrative. Before Cain murders Abel, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door like a wild beast, but you must master it. And it's very strange imagery of this wild beast but sin is mentioned there as something that hasn't yet kind of possessed Cain. And the language of sin isn't used in Genesis 3. But you do get the language of wisdom in Genesis 3. It's obscured by some of the translations, unfortunately, but there's a lot of wisdom stuff going on. So I've come to the view that the beginnings of the fall are to do with loss of wisdom and that what you could then call sin is a, a consequence or a manifestation of that a little bit further down the road. So sin starts to become a category with not Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve's children. So the dynamics of wisdom is where we should start in trying to understand the fall. And what we do is we take a manifestation of the loss of wisdom, which is sin, and we tend to use that as the category to understand how it went wrong. And it, we've got some things back to front. So we're in the realm of wisdom, really. And loss of wisdom into foolishness or, or whatever gives the kind of vocabulary that that has actually got a more natural affinity with a number of the world, world religions that will talk more about yeah, wisdom and foolishness, ignorance, and, uh, and so forth. So it's like relativizing the, just the language of sin and doing that because of how I understand what's going on in the biblical narrative. Um, it coincides with a kind of connection point between us in that you've sort of looked for other kind of vocabulary ignorance is a term right in the religious traditions you've been looking at now yeah. it's used in a very strong and deep way as i understand it rather than just our everyday talk in in the west but there's a there's a gulf between the language of sin and ignorance but there isn't the same gulf between the language of wisdom and ignorance so as i move more into a wisdom discourse it for me makes me feel i can find some affinities to the to the language of of ignorance of forgetting forgetting who we are i feel that i can start to entertain the language of ignorance in a deepened sense via this journey in a sense from sin to wisdom so i mean it's not that i don't ever talk about sin wisdom becomes more of a primary category and i find that that gives me a new new appreciation for what this talk in those religious traditions about ignorance might actually be about. Uh, now, I can't name it any kind of connection from your side. I'm simply talking about a connection from my side. Yeah, I feel like I would use completely different language for what's going on. So there's many paths in yoga philosophy, and the kind of original path is called jnana yoga. And this is where we get the texts of yoga called the Upanishads. And those texts come from thousands of years ago. These seekers called rishis uh, meditated for long periods of time and had these kind of revelations about our inner selves. And one of them was that 
there's an indivisible absolute source called Brahman, and the way it manifests in ourselves is called Atman. And one of the big ideas behind yoga is Atman equals Brahman. So it's this God within, all is one kind of idea. And the goal of all of these yoga paths is called Mukti, which is Sanskrit for liberation. And liberation in yogic philosophy means liberating from the ignorance of the true self. So transcending, like what you were saying with ignorance, and finding that true self within. And that ignorance of the true self causes suffering. So within doing that, you're healing suffering for yourself and for your communities that you work within. And there's many, many ways that that idea manifests. And I think what's kind of significant about yogic philosophy is that there's a freedom and a fluidity to work out this path in your own way. And there's kind of an acceptance too that you might use different paths at different points in your life and different people with different personalities and different conditioning will resonate with different practices. So the kind of yoga we think of today is hatha yoga, which is a physical practice. But it's not just a physical practice. There's a lot of tradition behind it of various philosophies and practices. Uh, In terms of your teaching, Emily, how do you try to make these connections between the texts you've been reading and how you're putting it into practice? Yeah, so it's, it's fairly new to me still, but I think where I am right now is I'm, I'm kind of shedding these ideas that I was brought up in. You know, we, one of the themes we wanted to talk about today was uh, an idea of God within and not God outside of us. I feel like what I took away from the traditions that I brought up in was, you know, I was talking to Nick today about how every single Sunday we would say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, uh, unworthy of the mercy and grace and love of God. And I think what yoga is doing for me is helping me to find a divine source within myself and a reminder that I am innately good. And I'm, I don't want to say that that's all of Christian traditions is saying that you aren't innately good or that everybody will come away from those traditions feeling that way. But it's been very liberating for me to kind of explore these sorts of practices that help me go within instead of feeling at the mercy of some source beyond me that I will never be good enough for. When you say innately good, Mm -hmm. it struck me that in the traditions you're talking about, they don't mean automatically good. It sounds like innate means something that's there, but it's deep, deep down and we might be estranged from it. So innate, it's not a superficial innate, it's a deep innate, if I can put it like that. That's how it sounds to me. I think there's a distinction, though, between in my true core self, am I divine and good, and then are my actions reflecting Mm. that? Right. So there can be a huge, potentially at least, a huge chasm between one's actions and this core. But I would say we're automatically good. We are innately good. But our actions are not automatically yeah, good. Yeah, there's a distinction there. So in that sense, at least, we're not automatically good. Mm-hmm. It's whether that good manifests or not, right? Yeah, right. But it's there. But it doesn't automatically manifest. Yeah, I, I would say that, yeah. I think that there is, there's far more of a potential connection between 
what you've just said and what's there in the biblical tradition that many Christians realize. And it would take a long time to really probe the potential connection. One of the ways it feels to me where one could could see that the biblical tradition is closer, has more affinity to what you're saying than the way Christians talk a lot of the time. I mean, just going back to the creation narrative and that the Adam or the earth creature is brought to life or is given life by God breathing the breath of God into the nostrils of Adam, the earth creature. And it's um, human beings living by the very breath of the divine. Is It's a very internal image. I mean, you, the breath is within you and you have to let go of it, of course, and then you breathe in again. But it's the idea of God is the oxygen that is within you. And that's what makes you alive. That's what makes you you. Yeah, we call that prana. Yes, and it's not that o ruach, let's say, or nefesh in, in Hebrew equals prana. That would be overdoing it. But there's more of an affinity, at the very least you can say there's far more of an affinity than some people might think. You, you have in the second verse of Genesis, you have the, uh, the spirit hovering over the waters. Or, and there, ruach in, in the Hebrew, which can mean a wind or spirit. But right at the end of Ecclesiastes, it talks about the, uh, the breath going back to God when you die. And there it uses ruach, and, and then the word for God is Elohim, which is clearly echoing Genesis. And the spirit that's hovering over the waters is connected to the life breath that is within human beings and is surrendered and goes back to God. I think it would be brilliant if Christians could spend time just exploring that kind of language and what that then means experientially. I mean, I myself, in my own kind of pattern of prayer and sort of spiritual, you know, centering or whatever that I do at the beginning of the day, I do certain breathing exercises. And I, I do try and connect to that idea that we, we live out of this life, the life of God, which is, you know, it sounds like yoga. Uh, part of yoga is oh, this very sure. mindful focusing on these deep processes as a way to get back in touch with something that's spiritually very fundamental so um yeah so we have practices in yoga called pranayama and it's one of the eight limbs of yoga so prana is life force but it's also breath and there's kind of a distinction there but also kind of this dance between the two and pranayama means to control the breath in order to liberate the life force and so we have a lot of practices of controlling the breath. One is alternate nostril breathing. One is inhaling, holding the breath, exhaling, holding the breath. There's a, a writer named Patanjali who wrote the Yoga Sutras. And he talks about chit, which is the fluctuations of the mind. And prana is breath. And he says when prana is still, chit is still. So we do a lot of practices of stilling the breath. So if you'd like to do more of that kind of practice, and if Christians would like to do that more kind of practice with breath, they should go to a yoga class. <laughs> and, and I think that would be good. I mean, I think Christians could also develop their own kind of traditions and rituals around breath as well in the process. Yeah, it's a really important part of practice. It's like breathing. It's such a profoundly spiritual thing. I mean, to take in breath 
to receive and to let go. The whole of spirituality is kind of wrapped up in that, in terms of how do you receive life? Is this just my right or is it a gift? Uh, What do we call that? And then to let go of breath as well, the letting go and the receiving, that rhythm. I mean, we live by that. And that is so intensely and profoundly spiritual. I wonder if, in addition to both seeking and being restless and, and so forth, is the search for a kind of a a kind of I could almost call it a natural spirituality that's that's really deeply in sync with life. Maybe we could just talk about purity culture. Yeah. So in yoga we kind of have these like they're similar to the Ten Commandments, they're the Yamas and the Niyamas, and they're these internal and external restraints. And there's ahimsa, which is non-harm, there's satya, which is telling the truth. So they're kind of similar to the Ten Commandments. But the difference I feel in them is that the way I interpreted the Ten Commandments growing up was you have to live by these rules. These are rules that are like hard and fast. If you don't do them, then you're sinning, that kind of thing. And in the yoga world, we talk about them as reminders of who we truly are. And so it's kind of like, you know, you are this innate divine. Of course, you would act this way. And it's kind of this almost like description of how you would behave if your true goodness was manifesting. And it's also not these hard and fast rules of life. We were talking about one that is brahmacharya, which is uh, sexual purity. And for a monk, that rule or restraint looks a lot different than a lay person. And in the school that I'm part of, one of the things we do is we sit with these ideas and this text and we argue about it, and we sift through it, and we talk about our experiences. You know, even as yoga teachers, we talk about what is an appropriate attire as a yoga teacher. Um, What do you do if a student asks you for a drink, or wants to start a relationship with you, or you want to start a relationship with a student? What are the sexual ethics in each context? And it's never, this is right and this is wrong. It's more of a conversation, and there's some fluidity. And I've really appreciated that, kind of spirituality in that space to um, feel like I can bring my own experiences to the table and that they're just as valid as anybody else's. Yeah. The language of the natural or the, or the fluid often doesn't sit very well with, say, the language of rules, regulations, commandments. So it's, it's inter- it is interesting to me that when you talk about these a kind of quote-unquote, Ten Commandments from that tradition, that, that, that they then play this um, positive role, very different from external rules and regulations. And they're reminders. I mean, the Ten Commandments in the Bible, it's very interesting. You can make this similar or parallel kind of move, it seems to me. I mean, in the Hebrew, it just means ten words. And then the word word in Hebrew has got a, a sort of a depth of meaning. But the ten words of life, really, And it starts with recognizing God, and it ends with don't covet. So it's like embracing God as the true God. And then not coveting means not getting caught in that sort of possessive, controlling, survival kind of thing that we can easily get caught in. Is Um, there anything noteworthy about the words thou shall not? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, for a start, it doesn't start with thou shalt not. And the final don't covet is a kind of, it's a summary If you take the first exhortation or the first blessing or first reminder 
to love God, let's say, and the last is to not cover. It starts positive, but it's um, if you live out of this covenant with God and with life, then you won't cover. It's like you're set free from coveting. I mean, that's one way of, if you read all the Ten command, Commandments, the Ten Words, in the light of the first one, they all flow out of the first one. It's a promise. If you embrace God, then you won't murder. It changes, you see, it's about changing the spirit of it, the tone of it. So it's like, so, if you do this, then yeah, you will not Yeah, so it's like these. a promise. It's a blessing. So I find it very significant that the what is often thought of as the first commandment to humans to fill, fill the earth is not a commandment. It's definitely a blessing. God blessed them and said, fill the earth. It wasn't God blessed them and then God added a commandment. It's no, the fill the earth is a blessing. So it's the same with the 10 words. It's like the call to embrace the God who, who self-describes as the God who has liberated them from slavery. It's like, I'm the God that liberated you. If you embrace the God of liberation, you'll be set free from coveting. You'll be set free from murder, both murdering and being murdered. That gives a certain spiritual impulse that can be as fluid as you need it to be, but it can also be as definite as you need it to be. I mean, at certain points, you can say, thou shalt not murder, very clearly in, in a black and white way. And in other situations, there can be the fluidity that you need, it seems to me, if you read it in the right spirit. Mm -hmm. If you read it in the wrong spirit, it becomes something horrendous. Yeah. I was thinking about how, you know, I grew up not only saying every Sunday I'm a poor, miserable sinner, undeserving of the mercy of God, but also within purity culture and what that culture told me as a woman and as someone with a sexuality, both of those things together were super unhelpful for me. And I think coming to yoga is also coming back to my body in a way that's liberating. Again, I want to say that I know that my experience is unique and not everybody's experience, but I think the traditions I was brought up in didn't fully allow for me to connect with my body. I felt like it was kind of a problem to be handled, and I think a lot of women growing up in purity culture, you kind of have this feeling that your body is an issue instead of just like part of who you are. It's this constant idea of... How are you being perceived as a woman? You know, are you the Virgin Mary or are you Mary Magdalene? There's nothing in between, right? And I think coming to the yoga practice, having this idea that there is an innate goodness within me, you know, the word yoga means to yoke, to bring together mind, body, spirit, breath. And I think finding those connections, again, even like neurological connections with my mind and my body and my breath and spirit has been super healing for me. And just appreciating what my body can do and how it can learn new things and progress. I grew up dancing as well. And yoga is also wonderful because you're not putting on a show. You're not performing. You're kind of in this, one of my teachers calls it our plastic islands you're kind of in this safe parameter on your mat. And if you have a good yoga teacher and a good liberating 
safe space to practice in, it can be really transformational to go within and connect to breath and connect breath to body. And that's something that I didn't ever experience before doing yoga. So that's kind of my transition out of purity culture, I guess. Do you think it's um, finding the freedom and the support to trust, trust your breath and body or that your body will reveal the path? If you, embrace, if you embrace that, giving yourself to yourself, as it were. That's that's kind of yeah. how it sounds. Yeah. People are very worried that if you trust yourself, you're just going to get lost in your impulses, right? And disaster is going to happen. But it's like the worry is for, for many Christians and for other people is if you trust your body and these deep processes, you're going to end up giving into your impulses not even instincts but your impulses and the worst ones and it's like actually when you get into this process you find no this is the way to um, not get caught in your worst impulses but to actually find what's really healthy and it becomes a self-reinforcing kind of cycle or process and it commends itself to you in terms of where this is going and yeah. you, you can trust it more and more so you have to start somewhere in the trust process there's, a, there's so much fear that's going on and control and so forth but then to actually get onto the path of finding the divine through trusting yourself and the body and so forth yeah that what it leads to is liberating and it is healthy and you know you're onto something good you just know that and I think that anybody that gets on that path will will find that. Yeah, I think we make a distinction with that too. Myself included in this, I know a lot of people who have actually physically hurt themselves doing yoga. Mm. And we talk about a lot about leaving your ego at the door. Mm. Because if you're not tuned in and you're watching people around you do these poses that you might not be physically ready for, you can hurt yourself during doing yoga. It's quite possible that you can hurt yourself. And I think... As I'm learning to be a better teacher, the idea is to create a space for students to feel like they can go inward and really listen to the cues of their bodies and then to feel safe to find a position such as child's pose, down dog, whatever position feels safe for you when your body has said that's enough, that's far enough, we've had enough today and it's time to rest. So yeah, finding that space of safety and freedom and also a space to push yourself a bit too because there's a difference between discomfort and pain right so yeah i think we do have a distinction there of listening to your impulses maybe versus listening to your instincts i find myself often talking about the body's wisdom so wisdom is a word i come back to a mm -hmm. lot so the body's own wisdom the body speaks to us Speaking is important to me. There's a kind of a language that you can yet yeah, tune into. And it's a matter of learning how to hear that language and listen to yourself. For Christians who are very used to it's God that points the way. Uh, it's like, well, if you think God is everywhere, then surely God is deeply within your body. And you can find the divine anywhere. So you can trust this. It's like God is there. It's not like you're going into territory where God is absent. Does that that idea of wisdom or language, the language of the body, the wisdom of the body, I would think that's fairly native to 
the traditions you've been learning about and practicing, right? Yeah, I think so. And the body is something to enjoy and not something negative, right. I think is, is a big connection here too. Right. And that then um, presumably opens up a kind of an alternative way to reject a certain kind of hedonism of our culture, right? I would imagine that the yogic traditions have their own way of rejecting hedonism. It's like um, enjoyment has to lead to real joy for yourself and for others. It's not at the expense of others. Or What I like about that possibility is the, the answer to hedonistic self-indulgence is not necessarily ascetic purity withdrawal, but is um, just a different way of engaging. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't thought much about the restraints of yoga because I've felt so liberated <laughs> from yeah. with it. So I'm mostly focused on the freedom in it. Mm. But I think working in those freedoms shows you like there's a natural restraint that you do within that. Yeah. Because you see this is something that I want and it's not this other thing. So it's kind of like you don't even have to think about it. It's this natural moving towards something positive and compassionate and good for you and your community. Yeah. So it's not a, to use that term, it's not a temptation. It's like it, yeah. loses, it loses its appeal or it, yeah. the hook, yeah. whatever hook that it has had in us perhaps or could have right. is, is gone. Yeah. Or you're just saying in your head, oh, ego, ego, ego. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> so you're not, you're not trying to keep yourself constantly pure from X. Yeah. There's not, there's not the threat there, I feel. Yeah. It's more like this is where I am. And I'd like to stay here. <laughs> mm. So that's the end of this week's episode. I'd like to thank Emily and Nick for joining us and sharing their insights and experiences. If anything piqued your interest, you can email the podcast team at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at www.icscanada.edu. You can also find me on Twitter as at Yeti. And you can find ICS as at INSCHR. If you want to keep up on the latest from us, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. And from the heart of ICS, thank you for listening. This has been Critical Faith.